Hello and welcome back to season 1 of the Inclusive Bookshelf where we explore the reading journeys of some phenomenal diverse writers who have shaped how we read social justice inclusion and intersectionality. I'm your host Zenia and every episode I will speak to one such author about books that have been pivotal in their life and strongly influenced their thought and work. So stay tuned for some brilliant book recommendations and let's dive right in. In today's episode we speak to Danish Hussain storyteller actor poet and theater director who has been instrumental in reviving Dastan Goi the lost art of Urdu storytelling he is the founder of Kisse Bazi a platform that promotes storytelling in diverse languages his love for poetry has manifested in the poetryfication project with actor Denzel Smith and he also runs his own theater company Hoshuba Repertory under which he has produced some brilliant plays like Chinese Coffee Guards at the Taj and Kissa Urdu ki Akhri Kitab ka his acting repertoire includes films such as Newton Dhobi Ghat and Peepli Live amongst others In this episode Danish revisits some books that have fundamentally molded his ideas of belonging and identity from Dr Rahima Sumraza's Aadha Gaon to Edward Said's Out of Place to Atiya Hussain's Sunlight in a Broken Column we explore the legacies of revolutionary writers such as Sadat Hasan Manto and Ismat Chuktai and the importance of writing that unsettles the status quo and makes you question the way things are throughout the conversation danish invokes the poetry of stalwarts such as ghalib and fez and brings out the deeply syncretic nature of our cultural roots and everyday existence hi danish lovely to have you here thank you so much for joining us today Hi hi Zenia thank you so much and I'm equally excited to be in conversation with you I absolutely love your work and your andaz poetry and I'm I'm so excited to dive into this conversation so let's get started then Absolutely Okay so Danish as, as someone whose life has been anchored in storytelling I'm curious to know how your own journey began you know your journey with reading your early encounters with the world of literature any fond anecdotes that have stayed with you memorable first could you tell us a little about that I grew up in a family which was a family of uh, literators so you turn left there is a poet standing you turn right there is a literary critic standing wow. you look ahead there is some scholar standing in front of you so it was a very normal thing in my family to be surrounded by books and to be surrounded by scholarly debates you know one of the chores that i had as a kid was to fetch the dictionary from the shelf either for my <laughs> granduncle or for my mother so you know i was pulling these big heavy dictionaries from the shelves like steingas for persian uh, or for plots or palin urdu shabdkosh hindi ke dictionary oxford or cambridge uh, dictionaries these names were there in my uh, you know in my in my consciousness and when somebody would say that steingas is a very competent dictionary for persian literature mm-hmm. said, yeah i know steingas so people would be really amazed how do you know steingas so i would say because i've grown up pulling that book from the shelf in my childhood so it was not unusual for me to be familiar or to be aware with literature or with authors and poets because i was growing in an atmosphere like that one of my uncles used to work at penguins so whenever he would get these rejected books he would uh, children literature he would come and he would give them to me and so at a very young age of 5 6 7 i started building my own library like this is my collection in the house because everybody mm-hmm. seems to be having their own personal library in the house so it was important for me to have a library of my own too 
So I also started building my own library. Okay, this is my shelf and I'm collecting books. And this reminds me of a poem of Dom Maurice, where Dom Maurice says that I'm here in a foreign land building a bookshelf of mine. So, you know, something like that. So I think at a very early age, I got introduced to literature, to books, to reading habits, to literary conversations. And even though for the longest time I tried wearing away from it, going into the world of banking and economics, but I don't think literature ever left or reading habits ever left. And when I finally decided to be an artist, I realized that it was even more imperative and important that one should read. If you are creating art, you are performing, or if you are an actor, it is extremely essential that you should be logged in. You should, you should have your claws in the world of literature and you should be completely entrenched with whatever is happening in the world of books if you want to compete and perform better in the art world. Absolutely. Right, yeah. And, and when you started off reading, did you, did you begin reading in a very sort of a, with a very diverse lens? Or did you, for example, I started off reading just white authors and for a majority of my childhood, I was just reading Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl. And I wasn't introduced to this, you know, plethora of diverse literature that lies within my own country in so many languages. So when did you encounter diverse literature, truly diverse literature? Much, much later in life, Sinha. Because, you know, if you look at whatever systems we've had in the world, irrespective of which culture you belong to, we've had a very patriarchal setup. So men were ruling the world, men were making the tax laws, men were making the constitutional laws, men were running the institutions, men were controlling publishing, men were controlling authorship. So universally, if you look at all great texts, they've been produced by men. And women, they were not allowed to either, you know, step out of house or to be educated. Even till 20th century, we see that how much resistance there has been for women to go out to school and to study and to acquire higher education. So the, the woman's voice was, was never really allowed to speak. And if you start tracing historically, irrespective of any culture, as you go back and back in history, you would find fewer and fewer woman names mm. in literature. And most of the classic texts that everybody gets introduced to are men. I mean, you're reading Shakespeare and you're reading uh, Milton and you're reading uh, Charles Dickens and you're reading, uh, you know, Ghalib and Meer and all these guys. So you basically, are, you know, Premchand. So everybody is a, is a, ma is a man right. that you're reading. And uh, obviously your, uh, all your taste and all your thought process. So it, 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 it happens that you get so immersed with male privilege that you don't think it's odd that you're not reading a woman's voice. And it takes a long time for you to realize that this is a privilege and you are entrenched in that privilege and you need to break off that privilege. And the first time when I started realizing that was, I was, I was almost in my 20s at that time. You know, when I got introduced to Ismat Chokhtai and when I got introduced to Qurratul and Heather, one of the things I remember was um, Atiya Hussain's novel, a Sunlight on a Broken Column. Right, uh, right. So that was one of the first novels that I read, which was written by a woman writer. So, you know, when I read Atiya Hussain, when I read Kudratul and Heather, and when I read Ismat Chokhtai, that's when I started realizing that there is a different voice. There's an alternate voice. And then, you know, I, then I started going more towards, because English was more the language I used to read in that time. So I started seeking Nadine Gordimer and Toni Morrison and, mm. you know, the other... Not the classics, not Jane Bronte and all that, because um, that was um, the 19th century Victorian literature never really appealed to me. 
but more okay. contemporary literature. Right. So I started reading them, and then by the time, you know, Arundhati Roy was here, and her novel had become a big hit. So, you know, I started seeking out these people, you know, Urvashi Butalia was there, and, and I started getting introduced to more and more female voices. I started reading female poets, you know. And as I, as I started reading that, I also started becoming aware of that publishing and literature is also about who has the privilege to write and get published. Exactly. And it was not just about women. It's also about swaths and swaths of people, of communities, of classes, which never had that kind of representation or the wherewithals to publish what they want. So Dalit literature for that, you, you see so scarce of it, you see so little of it, and you don't really get to hear Dalit voice in Dalit's voice. Similarly, literature from the Northeast, Kashmiri literature. So all of these things, you know, became, I became more and more sensitive to these things. Yeah, no, that's that's actually very, very relatable because I think for most of us, it is that period in the 20s when you sort of start off and realize that there's such a wealth of literature across identities and you've only been exposed to mostly cishet white men writing and, and if not white men, then even white women. And like you said, mostly the publishing industry here is dominated by upper caste, you know, cis men and even women for that matter. So gender minorities also don't get much of a voice. So it's 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 very important. That I think that's why we're doing this podcast to encourage people to read more diversely, to, you know, to venture beyond their comfort zones. What is important to realize here is yes, one should consciously try to be inclusive. But what is important to realize is that privilege and privileged literature, it works so insidiously, the narrative it seeps in so insidiously that as a habit, as a taste, it turns you off if you're not reading the, the dominant majority, majoritarian privileged literature. So it's like it develops your taste in a manner where if, if you see a woman writer or if you see a Dalit writer or if you see a writing from an oppressed class, it would kind of create a certain distaste in you that, oh, they would not have a complete worldview or they are coming from a very parochial or from a narrow perspective. And uh, thus, it wouldn't be great shakes. It wouldn't be fun reading these books. It wouldn't be enlightening reading these books. So I'm saying that at a very visceral level, privilege turns you off from other kind of voices. And that is something that one needs to recognize is that why, question that we should ask, why we are not reading more women writers? Why we are not reading more Dalit writers? Why we are not re reading more oppressed writing? You know, what is it that turns me off from that? And I think these are the questions that we should ask. And there possibly we would start seeing our biases. That, okay, this is the reason. This is where my bias is coming. This is the filter I have. And I need to remove that. I need to break that. I need to consciously go out and read this voice because there is something in me which is inhibiting me from doing that. And that thing which you can't define, your inhibition or your taste or your momentary disliking for something, is really your bias and that needs to be broken. So I think recognition of this visceral inhibition inside us to reading suppressed voices or to reading voices which are not being heard is very important and overcoming this visceral inhibition is very important. Absolutely. I remember PM Krishna had said once that taste is entirely a product of privilege. 
what you call quote unquote taste is so rooted in how we've been brought up how we've been how we've been conditioned like you said so and that obviously applies to literature as well so yeah that's a really important point and in our earlier conversation you've mentioned some truly powerful titles that you hold close to your heart so let's talk about some of those one of them was edward said's acclaimed memoir out of place could you tell us a little bit about why this book has been important to you Well, I mean, Edward Said is truly one of the most colossal intellectuals that we've had uh, in the 20th century. And I initially got attracted to him, not because I studied him in my course or anything, but I came across a book of his called Peace and Its Discontents. And it essentially looked at reportage and how reportage gets skewed up. You know, how necessarily it introduces biases that even if it is a journalistic reportage, it is still biased it's still looking at an arab with a certain filter and at the white west with a certain filter so somewhere in the reading of what you are reading you start making your biases that okay this is what is the villainous side or the antagonist side this is the protagonist side one of the most classic example is that when you say the word crusade it has a positive connotation to it when you say the word jihad it has a negative connotation though both were medieval wars about saving one's own faith but saving one's own faith on one side has become a negative term and saving one's own faith on the other side has become a positive term it is essentially because the the christian narrative or the imperial narrative which overrided everything became the dominant power in the world and that's why when you use the word crusade it has a very very positive connotation so i did say it kind of opened me up to this kind of thing like to look at the template to look at the subtext to look at what is not being said which is essentially what john berger also does in his writings and that led me to go and further read uh, edward said's memoir when it came out out of place and i was so taken by that whole thing it almost read like it was i was reading my own life you know about being this perpetual outsider that even though you are living in a place but there is this constant thing that i don't belong here and yet i have no one nowhere else to belong so this feeling of i don't belong here and i have nowhere else to belong to was something that was constantly you know that was the, the underlying terra firma of what edward said's memoir was and it made me see a lot of myself in that and that's why that book became very close to my heart and i think i think at the end of the day you know as a storyteller i also realized and also like uh, the great uh, sahil ludhiani's couplet ki kaun rota hai kisi aur ki khatir ae dost sabko apni hi kisi baat pe rona aaya so eventually and like one this great check playwright said that every great drama on stage is the audience's story playing out in front of them so you know so essentially what attracts us to anything is when we see something resonating in that story about us and that's what really what memoir did that and i think that's what all great literature does that even though you know whether it's marquez writing in south america or tony morrison writing in america or you know what is the octavio paz writing in mexico so but when they write they make something which is very immediate local universal and even though you are separated by time you are separated by space but when you read that narrative that thing distills to you and it reaches out to you and that the universality of it speaks to you also and i think that's what great literature does and and i think that's what edward said was able to invoke in me the ability to recognize this feeling 
how could you belong and not belong at the same time at the same place right no that's that's beautiful i think that's exactly what i i think literature why it matters to me so much is that there's a shared thread of humanity that runs through some really great books and when you read them you know you kind of feel like you can understand what the other person is trying to say even if they're not directly saying it especially fiction i think is always very interesting and i think the question is directly related to what you said because i was reading a review by one of said's colleagues and she says that said saw being out of place as a psychological state of things as a as a physical characterization and this idea really struck me because i wanted to ask you would you say that this is a shared feeling across minorities displaced and immigrant communities all over the world especially in its current state of disarray where people's identities and sense of self are so constantly being challenged it is most of what we experience in the world is psychological it has seldom anything to do with our physical world i mean a plant growing somewhere or an animal foraging for food somewhere doesn't really feel that world that we feel so you know this is a parallel universe that we humans have created because of our consciousness and a lot of time this parallel world has no rootedness in the physical world that we are living i mean in the sense that if you look at india right now the weather is not changing because of some communities feeling something and some other communities feeling something else so it's not that i am feeling more hot because i'm minority and you are living in a pleasant balmy weather because you are majority so the physical world the reality of that is pretty different than the reality of what we as people are living and a lot of this reality is rooted in this collective consciousness which is which has become a very bad word now but it is essentially this collective you know imaginary or psycho real kind of a world that we have created and and that reminds me of the great share by ghalib ki hasti ke mat fareb mein aa jaiyo asad do not fall for the deception of ego asad alam tamam halqay dame khayal the whole universe is nothing but a loop of your imagination's net 150 years back is saying this that the whole world is an imaginary net that we have created so do not fall for it do not fall for the deception of so in in a lot of ways a lot of this is psychological but it that that does not mean it's not real it is real i mean the oppression a man is facing on the road the oppression a man who's being harassed like that bangle seller in in indore or like that guy in kanpur or in lucknow women when they step out on road constantly facing this threat of rape or for sexual harassment or being accosted by unknown men and strangers in a lewd way all those threats are real so i think i think the fact that we've been able in spite of independence and education and technological growth and scientific advancement if we still as a society are at this juncture where people are not feeling safe people feel threatened people purely for the sake of what their name is what their color is what their gender is or their sexual orientation is are feeling threatened for their lives then that's a very sorry state of society that we've created and i think it is important that and one of the reasons why we have this kind of a society is that this is directly connected to anti intellectualism so you know the more people will will read and the more people will get exposed to the world of ideas the more transformative it will become for them but you do not want people to become transformative you don't want people to evolve you want people to remain in their you know straight jackets and in their silos 
in those narrow holes that they are sitting in because then it's easier to control them and it's easier to run your own agenda, the hate agenda. This, that's why anti-intellectualism has become a fad. If I don't believe it, it doesn't exist. No matter what the facts are, no matter what the research, are, research is, no matter what the experts say, if I don't believe it, it doesn't exist because it is all coming from this anti-intellectual culture that has been foisted on us. We see that in terms of anti-vaccination. We see that in terms of uh, historical truths and the veracity of historical research being negated. We see that in terms of uh, societal privileges. We see that in terms of people not being allowed to buy land or to buy houses or to move around in certain areas. It's all a repercussion of this anti-intellectualism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was, it's actually, like you said, the power of literature that a book which is titled Out of Place is something that can make you feel not out of place because you relate to the book and you understand how this is a, a you know, common common reality that so many people face. And so many people don't feel like they belong in their own homelands, which is just, it's really quite tragic. And I, I hope that we can build more bridges through literature. And another book along these same lines uh, that you mentioned is Adha Gao by Dr. Rahima Sum Raza, which is coincidentally set in your own village of Gangoli, right, in, in Ghazipur. So could you tell us about this book? It's very intriguing title and why the story is so relevant, especially today. Well, my village is some 15, 20 kilometers away from Gangoli. My village is uh, Nunaira. But of course, I'm related to some way this extended network of family I'm related to Dr. Raza. And uh, one of the things about Adha Gaon is this, that it very brutally and honestly looks at this multicultural, pluralistic society that India had around the time of partition and what devastation it did to the, to the social fabric when the partition happened. And uh, a lot of stuff that Dr. Rai Masum Raza writes in that book, I don't think we can show that on screen today or we can present it today because uh, it would really create a furore and an, and an uproar now. No one wants to hear all these things. But, you know, what? one of the things that I like about that book is this, that this syncretic culture was really not about dwindling your own identity or losing your own identity. So that means that whether you were Hindu or whether you were Muslim or whatever you were, you were pretty etched in your own identity and with your own biases. But they had able to figure out a way of mutual you know, existence, coexistence, you know, where without kind of um, stepping on each other's toes, they could live in a very harmonious way. So, uh, so what I like about it is that it's not that everybody has become liberal and they've forgotten about their religion and they've forgotten about their biases and they're freely mixing among each other which most people think a syncretic culture should be. These were extremely conservative people living with their biases in that small village, and yet they had figured out a way of living harmoniously over generations. And I think that is really what the syncretic culture was in that area, and which Dr. Rai Masum Raza captures so admirably in his novel with the plethora of characters that he creates. And he is unsparing to anybody. So, you know, you see characters as they are. They, you, see it's, you see them as humans. It's not about a set of person who are right all the time and a set of characters who are wrong uh, all the time or one set of people having all the shades of negativity and one set of people having, uh, uh, you know, just being victims. But everybody is a perpetrator and everybody is a victim. And I think that's the way we are in real life. A lot of us are traitors to somebody and for, uh, for a lot of people, we are victims. And I think that is what the beauty of that novel is, that it, it's a slice of life over a period of uh, 15, 20 years in a village, and it shows the way people were. 
without having any you know judgment or bias sitting sitting on those characters right no it does sound like a very it does sound like a very intriguing book and i want to read it someday and i feel like the book from what i read of it complicates ideas of home and and belonging but also simplifies them in many ways because like you said the muslims of gangoli did not want to leave after the partition simply because gangoli was their only home it had always been their home and that was the only life that they had ever known i think if you've been raised in india it's almost impossible to maintain a very singular identity right because a very existence is so pluralistic whether we realize it or not whether we even want it to be or not it just is so i wanted to hear your thoughts on this very unassuming syncretic nature of our lives in this country and how it manifests in our everyday in the way we talk in the food we eat in our monuments since so much of your work revolves around this multiplicity so we we live in a very pluralistic society and i think the the, sh- the amount of shades of culture and people and communities that you see in our country i don't think there is this kind of variety in any other part of the world i mean i remember the first time when i went to bombay in 1983 i was 12 or 13 years of age having lived all my life in delhi and in north india it was a shock to me to be in bombay to find that there are indians who are so different than me i mean i saw the khoja boras i saw the parsis for the first time i saw the marathis for the first time i saw a whole lot of south indians for the first time i was shocked that there are many indians who don't speak hindi you know when you were living in delhi at an age of 12 13 you assume that everybody knows hindi in this country <laughs> so i was shocked that there were indians who were telling me i can't speak hindi you know don't talk to me in hindi talk to me in english i was uh, amazed by cuisine that i encountered i had i saw dishes that i'd never tasted i did not know that these these dishes existed i saw people in clothing style which i had never seen i saw practices both religious and social that i was not aware of and this is only one slice as i grew up and and you know my theater took me to various parts of the country and as i traveled i found more and more layers of people in languages that i'm not aware of and the point is this that all of them have the similar amount of claim than anybody else to be part of this country so this whole thing about homogenization of culture or of language or of cuisine or of dietary habits or of aesthetic values essentially some kind of cultural and social tyranny because uh, why we have so many shades of cultures and and communities and people why must they all confirm or align with one singular taste which has been foisted by one majoritarian community and i think that's that is in some sense a certain kind of a social and communal tyranny and no one should be subjugated to that and the point is this that most of these things that you see today are they're not they are things that have not happened overnight they are confluence interactions over a millennia which has taken place so over a millennium these things happen and today we have a right to be whoever we are now you're trying to undo everything so when it comes to demising the majority the majority community you are talking about what babar did and what aurangzeb did and what delhi sultanate did you are very much you want to set right whatever has been done by these people but then the moment you start talking about caste atrocities which has been there for 10000 years you start talking of privilege and says well if my mothers and father and my ancestors did something i can't be held responsible for that you know let let the sleeping ghost sleep i'm saying that's a certain kind of hypocrisy if you want to set everything right then let's set everything right you know why are you sticking to only one form of historical wrongdoing and why not about the other form of historical wrongdoing so i think it is 
this is all a bogey this is all just an attempt to be in power and to and to perpetuate that power and really really not bother about the immediate that is what are people's sufferings what is it that people are lacking what is it that people need to make their lives better to not address these things and to just keep these bogies alive so that people are forever entangled with these things and somehow questions of real governance are never taken up absolutely yeah speaking of the the very plural nature of our everyday lives the very the very languages that we speak have so many words from different origins right like hindi is an amalgamation of you know urdu and there are bits of farsi in it and we are just speaking and and breathing and eating so many different cultures at the same time that it's impossible to separate these things and and why would anybody even want to separate things what we need to understand is that this whole conception that there was once everything fixed pure static etched in stone and now things have changed it was never like this we were forever a river we were forever flowing we were forever in turbulence people were forever migrating cultures were changing forever languages were changing forever so there was never a fixed period yes transitions were slower earlier transitions have become faster now because of technological changes but there was never a certain kind of rootedness that you can say that oh this was like fixed for 5000 years and then suddenly things changed no it didn't happen right from the dawn of humanity we have always been living in a flux so that means right from the dawn of humanity food taste architecture clothing language cultures stories they all have been flowing and they all have been changing and the more trade improved the routes of trade improved the methods of trade improved improved the sh- the shipment and the way the transportation uh, technology improved the trade and the migration in- increased and as trade and migration increased confluences of cultures they gathered steam you know more and more people started traveling across the world more and more cultural things cuisines foods habits stories started traveling across the world and the confluence became even more thicker and thicker so there was never a fixed period and what has happened that when the muslims started coming to this country and there were not like one set of homogeneous muslims there were different communities there were turks there were timurids there were moghuls there were arabs all kind of people were coming and they all have muslims are not a homogeneous community you know a turk far more different than a mogul is far more different than an arab is far more different than a persian so all of these people were coming with their own tastes now what happened that the persian empire was the dominant empire just the way the british empire became later so persian became the lingua franca or the trade currency or the trade language everybody thought that it was it became feasible for people to trade and to travel in the new persian and persian brought in a whole aesthetic sense and a culture along with it which came with the delhi sultanate which came with the bahmani kingdoms which came with the moghuls and that when it mixed with whatever was the prevalent culture here which was either khadi boli or punjabi or avdi or prakrit or maithili or uh, you know uh, down south you have marathi and telugu and kannada and you had gujarat because gujarat was a major port through which everything was coming all these rajasthani all these things confluence of this with the persian arabic culture resulted in a kind of a mixture of a language which you call rekhta or hindavi or delhi and and both urdu and hindi are kind of coming out of that only so the point is this that this is this is like a manthan a potpourri which has been brewing for 700 years 
before we could actually come to where we are. I mean, I think Richard M. Eaton's book, India in the Persianate Age, is a phenomenal book, which talks about as to a lot of what we understand as modern India actually took shape in these 700 years. So what we take for granted in terms of cuisine, in terms of clothing, in terms of architecture, in terms of language, a lot of it is coming out of this period. And this period, for whatever bad or good, is a confluence of scores of communities which have traveled across, settled here, mixed with local people. And out of that, this thing is coming out. So to undo that seven, 800 years is virtually like next to impossible feat. I mean, today, if somebody really wants to go clean, literally the, the world business and economic production is so intermeshed that you cannot separate what is Jewish and what is Christian and what is Muslim or what is Hindu or what is Buddhist or what is Chinese. Everything is kind of mixed with each other. So even your basic iPhone or your, 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 your basic air conditioner or, or your car or anything, it would have inputs from almost everywhere in the world. So what is, what is it that you're going to segregate? And how can you live in a segregated world? So it is kind of a certain utopia. And I don't know how people can be so dumb to fall for this kind of a utopia. We <laughs> live why? in a very intermeshed and interconnected world. Yeah. And there is no other way than to live than to live in harmony for all of us. So the only way we can survive is to live collectively and to live in harmony. Absolutely, yeah. Well said. I think the, the next book that we are coming to, Sunlight on a Broken Column by Adya Hussain, that you've already the only novel that she's ever written. I think this novel is largely based on Adya's own life. It's almost like a fictionalized memoir, which holds its own kind of significance, I think, because so many people from oppressed communities cannot openly write memoirs, you know, lest they provoke negative consequences for the author. So I want to ask you the importance of reading and writing memoirs in this context, because I think memoirs are a very powerful form of resistance, of sort of reclaiming one's own narrative, especially as we talk, as we've been talking about such a, you know, in a culture with so much multiplicity, there are so many stories which are usually not written by the people who are living them. Other people write stories about communities which have been oppressed. So what's the significance of somebody writing a sort of a memoir in, in this kind of a setting? I think, I think prima facie, it's very important if people have the agency to write their own stories. Because then you get to hear things firsthand. Hmm. But there is also a danger. Because as Joseph Campbell says, that we all are heroes in our own journey. So, you know, there is a bias. We are uh, necessarily soft on our own selves. We do not see ourselves in a bad light. You know, it takes a lot of courage and truthfulness to write brutally about your own self. So on one hand, it is very important to have people write their own memoirs or communities have their own voices because then there is a certain authentic first-hand narration that you are hearing about it. But there is also danger or a, a pitfall that you would be sympathetic to your own self because you are a hero in your own journey. So then it becomes important to hear alternative narrations too, in order to get a whole 360 degree kind of a view. So, and, and, and thus, I think it is important to encourage all kinds of voices so that in every kind of voice, there would be a certain amount of authenticity and there would be a certain amount of bias. But if you will have all the voices, then you will be able to sift through it and possibly have a lens through which you can gauge as to what is, the more authentic representation of what was happening in that period. But in order for you to develop that lens where you can gauge 
it is important that you are able to hear all the voices. If you're only hearing one set of voices, which is the privileged voice or the elite voice, then you will not be able to form. That's why you know the whole uh, the whole movement to write about the subaltern history became so important because history was always about kings and about the victors and about the rulers. And suddenly, a whole uh, bunch of historians came up with this ideology, with this uh, with this template that that can't be true because there are other people also living in that period and these are marginal suppressed subaltern people who do not have voices what is their history what are they living through what is it that they went through but in order for you to find that kind of record your subaltern also must be in a, in a position to have that agency to tell their own stories so i think that it is most important that everybody should be encouraged Everybody should get certain kind of basic amenities in terms of education, healthcare, you know, freedom of expression, constitutional liberties being guaranteed, so that people are in a position to write their own narratives. And thus, we are able to sort through historical biases and figure out as to what exactly was happening in that period. Yeah, yeah. So where do you think Adya Hussain's book fits into this? Well, Adya Hussain is, 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 again, you know, in some sense, it's one of those rare woman voices which are telling the story. But then Adya Hussain also is a privileged woman. Yeah. Because, you know, she's educated, she's writing in English, so she's not representative of the, uh, the Muslim uh, women in all. But yet it is an important voice because we were not even hearing so much from privileged women also at that time. So I'm saying that one has to be grateful that there were people like Gulbadan, who was, you know, Humayun's sister and who was writing a memoir in that period. And through that, we are able to see life in the Mughal harem, which was so included from the rest of the world. So similarly, when Atiyah Hussain is writing, we are able to see a life of a privileged Muslim landed aristocracy. But at the same time, it is not really what every Muslim woman was going through. So it's just like you say, it's an incremental improvement. But in order to get the real picture, we still need to go further. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why memoirs are so important. And, and memoirs from people with marginalized identities in so many ways are, you know, their own acts of resistance. And I think it's it's so important to read and write memoirs. Where, where Atya Hussain's voice becomes important is that you realize that even being privileged, they were still living in a gilded cage. And there was still so much restriction that a privileged woman was also facing in a patriarchal society. So just imagine that if a privileged woman is facing this much, what would that be for an unprivileged woman? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you also you've also spoken about stories of of course of Manto and of Isma Chuktai, who are both revolutionaries in their own rights, of course, and who were both tried in court for their writing, which to me is always a mark of how path-breaking the piece of work is in so many ways. So could you talk a little about the legacy of Mando and Chuktai and how they paved the way for all the radical literature that was to come, especially in short story format? You could also share some other short stories that have made an impact on you, if you'd like. You know, the, the great thing about Mando uh, or Isma Chuktai or, you know, Krishan Chandar or Rajinder Singh Bedi and all these great, Prem Chand, all these great writers, is that they they broke through the romanticization of society that, you know, I mean, it's not all hunky-dory. It's not all a bed of roses. There is a lot more to our lives and there, is a, there are a lot more conflicts to our lives. and There are a lot more paradoxes and uh, unpleasant things that we are living through in our lives. And all these things in, with their multiple hues come alive in the writings of these, these authors. So what they, I think what they did was that they kind of broke us away from the dream world literature of Ek Raja Tha, Ek Rani Thi, or, you know, Ustara Se, Uske Baad Zindagi Bilkul Achhi Chal Rahi Thi. They broke us from that mold 
and they made stories real. They made they made characters real. People whom we, whom we would not even care to give a second look became important characters in their stories. And the stories of such people who are voiceless, who are marginal, who do not have any representation, came alive in the literature of Manto or Premchand or Isma Chaktai. And that is very important. Is that they turned the lens of literature away from privilege and elitism and romanticism. To the to the real people, to the real society where the hardship was, and I think that's where it was. It was very path breaking the kind of literature that these people wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And you also spoke about how these authors, what was sort of part of my question that they they face a lot of backlash from society for writing about the things that they did, some sort of legal backlash as well. So. Yeah, so I was just wondering how that fit into today's context as well, where there's so much censorship in our society when it comes to writers. And if you really want to write something that challenges the status quo, you know, you have to sort of immediately fear for your life in so many ways. And there are so many writers and journalists being harassed. And I just wanted to know, and this was so long ago, and it's still the case. So I wanted to know your thoughts on this. See, the closer you would inch towards the truth, you are going to upset somebody. If you are trying to write going to please everybody, then that would be the most bland, lukewarm kind of writing that it could be. The moment you are inching closer towards the truth, you will have to take a stand. You will have to speak what is, you'll call a spade a spade. And that's going to upset someone. And the likelihood is that it's going to upset the status quo. It's going to upset who's benefiting. Because, you know, those who have nothing to lose, they don't care. Because their life's not going to change. But the people whose life's going to change are the status who are benefiting from it. Because then this literature is directly attacking them. And they are the ones who are bound to lose. And they feel threatened. And they are holding control of institutions. And they will come after you. Whether they come in media, whether they come in terms of criticism, whether they come in terms of sedition and blasphemy cases, whether they come in form of government censorship. But it's always, always those who are benefiting from the system, for their, for whom it's best if the system continues the way it is continuing. They are the ones who, who will feel threatened and they will try to, to subdue or to suppress this kind of voice. And and the same, and this was exactly the case which was happening in terms of Manto or Lisbon Choktai and all these people because they were talking about Tony capitalism, they were talking about patriarchy, they were talking about uh, rogues taking over patriotism and nationhood, they were talking about corruption, they were talking about inherent biases in the society. And of course, all this is going to upset somebody's cart. And whoever's cart gets upset is not going to take it lightly. So uh, that's the reason why you find that forever these authors were quoting controversy or were quoting cases because they were really stepping on somebody's toes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Coming to a topic which is very dear to you, which is Urdu spoken word traditions from Dastan Goi to Mushaira to Ghazals, I want to ask you about oral forms of literature and storytelling and what their significance is within larger social contexts. Well, I think I think we kind of underrate oral literature because we give a lot of importance to written word. Written word is almost like a divine edict to us. That once it is there, it's once it's published, once it's written, then it's sacrosanct. And because spoken world is immediate, ephemeral, gets lost. So we do not kind of accord that kind of prestige to oral world as we accord to written world. But I think that's slightly unfair because a lot of our knowledge, wisdom that has been passed on to us generation by generation has really been oral literature. 
you know, the written literature came much, much later. You know, it's, it's only five, six hundred years, seven hundred years that uh, printing and publishing came in, and uh, we started having published literature. And and a lot of it is essentially in last hundred and fifty years that we've seen. So we kind of tend to neglect and relegate our uh, oral literature, which is slightly unfair. And I think a lot of truth, a lot of our past, a lot of the echoes of who we were is kind of woven into our oral literature. You know, if you look at folk songs, if you look at mythologies, if you look at uh, cultural uh, traditions and hymns and songs and practices, which people invoke at certain festivals, a lot of uh, our wisdom is stored in that. I mean, one great example is this, that uh, when the tsunami came in 2014, a lot of people living, the tribals who were living in Andaman and Nicobar Islands, they had not seen tsunami in their lifetime. But they had heard from their ancestors that when you see the sea recede deep, like a kilometer, two kilometer inside, then that means a huge wave is coming. And you should go as up as you can, whatever the highest place you can find on the island. So when they saw the sea receding almost a kilometer, a kilometer and a half, they immediately understood and they all started scampering up uh, for heights. Now, how did they get to know this? Because they have not seen tsunami in their lifetime. They don't know about tsunami, but that wisdom somewhere trickled down to them in the words of the stories or songs that they had heard from their ancestors. And that wisdom was able to save them. So I'm saying that a lot of wisdom, especially local wisdom, is kind of woven into the language of that culture, the language of that place. And thus, it is important to preserve and to save various languages, languages which are not in the mainstream pantheon, you know, who have a, a written grammar and who have a written literature and who have a published literature. But a, a lot of, like, you know, Ganesh Devi's work, if you look at, and he talks about the 1981 census, and he says that he, he was going through the census and there in the language section, right at the bottom, it was others, and there were some 1,500, a number written called 1,500 languages. So he was very astonished that what are these 1,500 languages that we have? And this by the time the 2011 census came in 30 years, this number had gone down to some 720 something. So in 30 years, we had lost almost 50% of these unaccounted languages. And each language lost means culture lost, a universe lost, a history lost. So it is important to understand that even if a language may not have the prestige of a written language or of a written literature, it is still a very, very important repository of wisdom uh, that we have. The famous saying attributed to a genuine linguist professor, I've forgotten his name, where he said that uh, a language is nothing but a dialect with a gun. So whichever dialect got the power became the dominant power, was able to convert their spoken word, spoken language into a very prestigious literature or language. And whoever could not get the power, their language remained at a level of a, just a dialect or a spoken language. So I think it is important to recognize that these unaccounted languages, these oral languages, these oral traditions are equally important as written traditions. They are also repository of wisdom, of history, of knowledge, and it is important to preserve them, important to archive them. It is important to document them so that we do not lose this strand of wisdom that we have developed over millennia.
Absolutely. And I, I was actually thinking of, I was learning Mundari with this organization called Trilingo, which is trying to preserve and foster indigenous languages. And, and I sort of realized how important oral forms of storytelling are because they, you know, they democratize stories in a way and, and they make them more accessible to communities, especially those without written scripts. So speaking of Urdu spoken word traditions, could you share a little about how that sort of fits into, you know, larger social narratives? See, Urdu, essentially because of the historical context in which the language evolved, was a very urban language and also was a language of elites in some sense. So Urdu, right at the beginning with itself, had this prestige of being a written, of being a language which is published, which is recorded. And thus, a lot of uh, Urdu kind of existed, both in terms of the, the fad or being the cultural fashion at that time. So, you know, there were a lot of poetical, there were a lot of poetic stories so- happening and mushairas happening and conclaves happening and gatherings happening and where basically people are, whether in poetry or in prose, they're arguing or they're talking. A lot of religious settings that are happening and discourses that are happening, they're happening in oral Urdu. So a lot of oral traditions kind of simultaneously evolved along with the publishing of the language. And also because it was a very urban language, a lot of these urban centers had these oral traditions concurrently running with the the publishing happening. So because of which the Urdu became a dominant lingua franca for almost 200 years. And uh, all these traditions kept that alive, which there is the Mushara tradition or the religious theater tradition or the religious discourses tradition or it becoming the language of the political discourse that was happening in the late 18th and the most of the 19th century. And thus, the oral tradition is very rich in that sense. And still, you realize that even people who are not so much well-versed in Urdu get very attracted to Urdu because, because of the oral traditions, the spoken quality of the language is very rich. You know, when, just when it's spoken, it, the way it sounds, the cadence of the language, the imagery that it evokes, the various metaphors and analogies and similes that the language uses, it makes it very rich for spoken uh, word quality. Uh, And that is the appeal of the language. And that's why even after 70 years of suppression of the language by the state, the language is still alive and flourishing and have so many admirers in the country. Absolutely. I was I was actually wondering how would you juxtapose the works of some of your favorite poets that you've mentioned to me from Ghalib to Fez to Miranis with the current landscape of storytelling and poetry in Urdu in India? Well, if you look at the CA and RC protests were taking place, most of the poets who were being invoked were who? I mean, they were Fez, Jalib, Dushan Kumar, Ghalib. I mean, Iqbal, these are the poets who were being invoked. So surely, I mean, if the language of the protest hasn't changed, and in 2020, the language of the protest is the language of Urdu poets, then that speaks volume about them. Absolutely, yeah. And since we're on the subject of Urdu poetry, I also wanted to bring up translations, because, you know, translations and the politics of language, especially in a world so fraught with divisiveness right now, I was wondering, what do you think is the role of English translations in making these powerful works of art more widely accessible and read? Since a lot of literature around themes of identity you know, and descent has been written in Indian languages, including Urdu, of course. So do you think translations are even able to fully encapsulate the essence of these very radical works? No, see, no translation can do justice to the original because every language has its own context. 
Every language has its own origin. Every language has its own historical context in which it has plunged. So each language comes with a different flavor, with a different set of words, with a different set of ideas that it invokes. And to transpose one set of ideas to another set of ideas is very difficult because it's not necessary that you would find parallels to everything that you have in one cultural context or in one linguistic context when you take it to the other linguistic context. So a translation would always be in some sense, a poor approximation to what the idea was in the original. But yet, yet it is important to translate because it's better to have poor approximation than not to have any approximation. It's better to acquaint people with something than to not acquaint them with anything. So a translation does open a huge door on people. You know, it's like basically going to another country where you don't know the language. But just by being present in that language, you're able to absorb something rather than not ever going to that country. You know, and that's what translation does, that it takes you to that country and it explains you context, even though you may not be able to get the flavor completely, but it gives you some understanding of who these people are and what their historical contexts are and what, how they have been defined to be the way they are right now. And you get some context of that. And I think that is important for empathizing with people. And that is exactly what we are trying to do in translation is to create a context where you can understand another literature, another language, another set of historical specificities and empathize with that. And that's where the translator's job becomes very, very important. Absolutely. And I think in one of our episodes, we speak to Rana Safi as well, who has translated a couple of books. She was telling me about them on monuments, on Delhi monuments, uh, which were written in Urdu. And after she translated them, a lot more people actually read them and they were able to engage with these very important ideas. Uh, which goes to show how important translations are, you know, to make those works of art more accessible to people. And even if they don't, like you said, completely, you know, enjoy the the actual essence of it, but at least they get to read what was written, be it in whatever Indian language. So, so which brings me to my last question, which I'm quite excited about. Could you take us on a quick tour through your current favorite read? Any poetry anthology, short stories, or whatever has recently sort of captured well, your attention. Uh, you can also I'm read really out some piece. Hooked on to history, and I'm reading a lot of books on history, and I had some great books that I've read in recent past. So there's uh, Manu Pillai's book on the Bahamani kingdoms, which I think is great, and Sharma's An Intimate Portrait of an Emperor, which is on Jahangir's life. And I read uh, Ira Mukoti's uh, book on Akbar. And Rich Dam Eaton's book on uh, India and the Persian Age, 1000 to 1765 AD. And then I read uh, Manan Ahmed's uh, The Loss of Hindustan and the Invention of India. And uh, Ranjit Thaskote and Ustansir Dalvi, two of my friends, their new poetry collections. So uh, these are the few things that I've recently read, and I've been completely, completely bold over by all these writings, especially these, these exciting women historians, you know, Ira Mukoti, Parvati Sharma, Anchal Malhotra. It's so refreshing to read their voice and to see what they have created. Right now, I'm reading this book called Before the Divide, which is looking at Hindi and Urdu literary culture, which is uh, the editor is Francesca Porcini. So I'm reading this book, which is a great insight as to what was happening before the Great Divide, before these two languages got separated to, uh, into two different literary traditions, Hindi and Urdu. What were we speaking before they got identified as Hindi and Urdu? That 400, 500 years between Amir Khosro 
and Wali Dakani coming in and the Urdu tradition of Ghazal writing began. It's a great book, which is looking at, you know, Khari Boli, Braj Bhasha, Dakani, and the mixing of all these languages with Persian meters and Persian and Arabic words. And the other book that I'm reading is uh, Justice Rajinder Sacha's uh, autobiography in pursuit of justice, which is again a great insight to this man's life who always upheld humanity and equality and secularism. These are the two books uh, I'm reading. And, and then I think I am, I will switch a, a little language thing and I'll go with my friend Ashok Kumar Pandey has written this book, which has become a bestseller, Usne Gandhi Ko Kyo Mara. So then I would start reading this. This is next on my reading list. And I have a couple of uh, Urdu books, which are not here right now, but I would start reading them because um, I like switching languages so that I can, for a while, get lost in that other world of the other language and, and read that. So this is really, and besides that, I keep reading poetry all the time. Now there is no, you're traveling, you're walking, doing anything. Acquainting yourself with one new poem is always a good idea. Absolutely. That's quite a reading list you've got there. I love it. And I, I think we've, you know, we've got a lot of really cool recommendations from you today that we'll be sharing on the podcast. And thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing your insights, sharing your thoughts and sharing so many lovely titles, which is what the readers are going to look forward to. And thank you so much, Danish. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Zinia. Thank you. I also had a great time. So thank you to you and to all of the team. Thank you so Bye-bye. much. Thank you. Bye-bye.